The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Well, hello. I'm Katie Maloney, and you probably know me from a little show called Banner Bumber Rolls. I've been labeled all kinds of things, a bitch, a bully, and a mean girl. But there is so much more to a person than what you see on TV. Tune in every Friday as I talk to some of my friends and castmates, celebrities, comedians, medical professionals, and maybe some political figures. And by the time we're done, you're going to love me. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. All the episodes on Looking Up are special without a doubt. It's hard for me to find the right word to describe today's episode. It's more than special. It's an episode that I've been pretty eager to get out to you guys. Last week was World Holocaust Remembrance Day and the 76th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Now more than ever, it is necessary to share the stories of Holocaust survivors so that history may never repeat itself. My guest on today's episode is special for a number of reasons. Her resilience, her strength, her determination, an awe-inspiring ability to create hope from hopelessness are all but a few of the many ways she survived her own time at Auschwitz. Dr. Edith Eager, who is currently a psychologist and a prolific author's story, starts at the tender age of 16. When she was a young and in-love ballerina who was yanked away from her reality and thrown into the inhumane and cruel conditions of a concentration camp. She was forced to dance in front of the angel of death himself, Yosef Mengele, and was rewarded with bread that she could have easily kept for herself, but chose to share with the other prisoners. She never knew if the shower she took would be gas or water, and she survived the death march. She spent eight months at the death camp in Poland, where she was starved, tortured, beaten, and humiliated by soldiers. She witnessed the most traumatic horrors a human could bear witness to. Dr. Eager's absolute truth is that she is a survivor, that she never allowed herself to be a victim or a prisoner in her own mind. She credits her survival to her mother's parting words when she was just 16. No one can take away from you what you've put in your mind. There is so much to learn from Dr. Eager's courageous and resilient healing and survival journey. This conversation is a reminder to us all that tomorrow, although never promised, can be the friend that keeps us going and to hold space for hope in the darkest of times. This is certainly the truest and most authentic form of resiliency that I have ever come across. I am so beyond joyful to have you on Looking Up today. And before we sort of jump right in to what we really want to talk about in this episode. I like to start each episode with my guests with a series of short, rapid-fire style questions. Don't think too much about it. Just the first thing that comes to your mind. Dr. Eager, has there been a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? I think A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl Mm. has 
given me the permission to also open up and not to keep my secret because I didn't want anybody to feel sorry for me. So that comes up for me. And I became a logotherapist as well. I became a diplomat in logotherapy. And I did a keynote address for his 90th birthday. Wow. That would be one. That's amazing. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. I think people think that I am very extroverted. And actually, I'm very introverted. (laughs) Yeah. I am not uh, unhappy at all to be with myself. I think it's good company. And I think people are having sometimes an impression of me that I'm all over the place. But actually, I like privacy. And when I was married, I wanted to have my time. And for my husband, was he and I, that (laughs) would be alone. But for me, alone means alone with myself. Yes. Yes. I completely understand that. When is the last time that you cried? Last night. Mm. That night I woke up crying because I was, I was among the dead before I was liberated. And somehow I just woke up with tears all over my eyes and it happens Mm. to me. And, uh, and it's fleeting. You know, I don't get stuck in there. Mm-hmm. I don't actually, I invite the feeling and I have a good cry and then I feel better. Yeah. Crying good because what comes out to your body doesn't make you ill. What stays in there does. Yes, so true. Three words to describe yourself as a teenage girl. <laughs> I think I was uh, very erudite, very educated. Uh, teenager because my mother told me, I'm glad you have brains because you have no looks. So I had my own book club. I actually read the interpretation of dreams by Freud. And uh, I had a boyfriend and we had our own book club. and, And I think I was very mature as a teenager. Today, I really am not comparing myself to any 16 year old because uh, it's, it's just a very different time. Yes, absolutely. What are three things that have brought you joy today so far? Oh, the biggest joy was uh, pictures of my great-grandsons who are identical twins. And they're sitting there looking at the lion somewhere. Uh, and and that, that just puts such warmth in my heart that I have now three children, five grandchildren, and seven great-grandsons. Wow. And I that really just the biggest joy that, that I could have, that I achieved them. Wow, that's so amazing. Um, do they all live nearby, or are they all spread out? They live here in San Diego, but right now they are in Sacramento. And of course, I have a wonderful assistant. And that's Katie girl. And here she is. She's trying to always tell me that if I don't understand your question, 
she's explaining it to me. You're doing such a great job. You know, doing all this Zoom stuff was actually very difficult for me. I'm not a very technologically forward person, but look at you. You're here. You're doing this Zoom interview virtually with me, and you're doing an excellent job. <laughs> yes, it's wonderful. People say that times heal, but times doesn't heal. It's what we do with the time. I yes. think that is important to talk about is what are you doing? And the Zoom is something wonderful. All I have to do is put on a scarf <laughs> to wear my nightgown under there. So <laughs> I don't have to go to the airport. I don't have to stand. You know, it's uh, there are lots of gifts and everything. Yes, that is a great segue into your book, The Gift, um, which is a gift in itself. And before we jump into that, because I have some questions, I wanted to ask you, how do you define optimism? I like to talk to people about realism rather than optimism, because the idealists sometimes don't find exactly what they're looking for, and they can become uh, very cynical Mm-hmm. And think I think I like the idea of being realistic. Yes. It's the optimistic thinking, like California narcissism. I ask people, how are you? And they say, terrific, you know. <laughs> I don't know who is terrific when the world is falling apart. Yes. So I like the idea of being realistic, but always finding some good in everything. And if we are in a tunnel, just look for the light. Have an arrow that you follow, that there is hope in hopelessness. And that's what kept me alive in the darkest places in Auschwitz. That is exactly what I want to talk to you about. And that's actually how myself as an optimism doctor, exactly what you said is how I define optimism and really I'm trying to make a big spotlighted difference between toxic positivity and just slapping on an inauthentic positive slogan over any feeling we have and the difference of being authentic with how you truly feel, but at the same time, holding space for hope and following that light, as you said, and continuing to find those pathways and your story and reading about your experience and you know, being one of the few Holocaust survivors today. And and you said in the gift, Auschwitz provided the opportunity to discover my inner strength and my power of choice. And even as an optimism doctor, just imagining and reading through some of the very vivid, specific experiences you went through, it was so difficult for me to find how I would ever find that strength and that choice and that power in it that you found. And I am just so honored to speak with you. And I wanted to know, there was one story that uh, you recounted and it just, it made me cry. It gave me chills. Um, It just, it shook me. And I was wondering if you could talk about it a little bit, if it was comfortable, but it was about you dancing, dancing for the bread. Yes, yes. Uh, Dancing for Dr. Mengele. He came to the barracks and he wanted to be entertained. And I was afraid myself that if you don't give him what he really wants, that he may will take us to the gas chamber. And so my friends 
my colleague just pushed me in front of him and I ended up dancing and he said, just dance for me, dance for me. And so I closed my eyes and I imagined that I was at the Budapest Opera, the music was Tchaikovsky, and I was dancing the, Rom the Romeo and Juliet. And I had a wonderful dance that I danced for everyone, especially the president came to my city. It was a Hungarian dance, and I do a lot of acrobatics too. I, I do a split and I pick up my legs. And so I did all that. And then he gave me a piece of bread. And what is important about it, that if I would have just eaten up that piece of bread, rather than sharing it with my girls, I may not be alive today because when I was on a death march, and if you slow down, you were shot right away. And the girls that I shared the bread with came and they carried me so I wouldn't die. It's very important to really say that the worst condition brings out the best in us. And that's mm -hmm. what you do. You know, you're not telling people to be happy, 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 mm -hmm. and, and artificially now, but to be genuinely committing yourself that bring us closer together, that we can unite together. And you can be you and I can be I and we can agree to disagree, but that doesn't mean I'm right and you're wrong. And uh, so I think your work is, I'm going to call you the ambassador. <laughs> yeah, ambassador for peace, for yes. goodwill, for us to really be good parents to ourselves. Because self-love is self-care. It's not narcissistic. I'm looking yes. at my, my, my precious Katie because she wants me to say it every time that self-love is very important and it's not narcissistic because if you don't love you, right, then why should I love you? Right. It's so true. And to me, self-love is exactly what you said. It's not narcissistic. It's actually survival. It's, it is. You know that you, you have temptation. You know, God gave us temptation so we can practice the freedom of choice because I'm going to be tempted to eat up a whole chocolate cake. I may be uh, tempted to eat uh, good Hungarian strudel and so on, uh, but I know that I have a very bad scoliosis and if I gain weight, I'm going to have more pain. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, to be realistic, you have to look at the consequences of every behavior, not a punishment, but a consequence. Right. So it's very good to tell yourself, is this good for me? Is this going to give me five minutes of pleasure and maybe years and years of pain? You have to really be paying attention the way you talk to yourself, because it changes your whole body chemistry. Right. So many people, uh, you know, that I work with say, well, how can you tell me that, you know, what I do and what I think is my choice when I'm in this situation that I'm helpless in and everything is awful? And I look to someone like you who literally said that you discovered your inner strength and the power of choice while you were at Auschwitz and how, 
How did, and especially so young, I think you were 16, right? When you were first. I was 16 in love. In love. In love and you had a boyfriend and you were ripped from, ripped away I from was, him and your family. See, what happens is that doing what you're doing now, because that's your calling. Mm-hmm. You do that because you were given a gift, a gift of giving and gift of teaching and gift of being a role model. See, when you talk to me and then you go to the bar and you get drunk, people are not going to have much respect for you because you see, uh, you live. What you're doing is, is this is your life. Mm-hmm. And this is your calling. And I feel the same way that people don't come to me. They're sent to me. Mm-hmm. See, I was sent to you. You were sent to me. So I am hopefully letting you know that the chronological age doesn't mean a thing. Mm -mm. And you have to love what you do. You love what you do. You get up in the morning and you look forward of how you can make a difference in people's lives. And that is wonderful. If you want to save the world, you got to save yourself and see how you can make a difference that people are going to be survivors and not victims of any circumstance. That is so important, especially coming from you and your experience. How did you choose to be a survivor and not see yourself as a victim in the most awful of circumstances? I said to myself, if I survive today, then tomorrow I'm going to see my boyfriend. Tomorrow became really a wonderful friend, and I created my world and said to myself, they are the prisoners, not me. I am innocent. You are wearing a uniform. You're throwing children into the ovens without gassing them, and you're going to pay for what you're doing. So I created a world that no Nazi could ever murder, and this is what I'm saying. They could have thrown me in a gas chamber any minute. And that's what's happening now. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We know when we took a shower whether gas or water is going to come out. So that's why it was important not to allow, even then and now, anybody to murder your spirit. Mm. Yes. Where do you think you got that inner strength and sense from to even know that. I'm sure there were people around you that that was a really tough sort of notion to to stick with and to to not sort of feel like a survivor. And, and where do you think that came from in you? Was it already in you? Did Auschwitz bring it out in you? Uh, when we were in a cattle car, and that's what I tell young people, my mother told me, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put in your mind. Mm. So I asked young Pigford to go watch the Karate Kid, that even if you don't like it, you're developing patience, courage to not give in and not to give up because use this time to really take stock of yourself. Where are you and where do you want to go? And Pick a goal that you're going to follow. I call it arrow, that you follow an arrow. 
and that don't get off that road. Stay on it and find light mm. in a dark I really, I really like that what sort of got you through at that time, especially so early on, was the idea of making tomorrow your friend and taking it really like not thinking about the future so far off, but literally just if I can survive tomorrow, I will yes. see my boyfriend and, and have that sort of, that was your arrow or your light that kept you. Actually, I was able to turn hatred into pity. I began to feel sorry. And I, today I too feel sorry for people who think very rigidly, black and white, all or nothing. And nothing, nothing is good if it's done in excess. Mm-hmm. I think it's good to have a balance between working and loving and playing. And if you're a workaholic, and you may want to go and maybe go and go belly dancing or do something ridiculous <laughs> that you find that you can find a balance, not to overdo anything. At what point in your experience were you able to make that shift of turning the hatred into pity? I many times think that I found God in Auschwitz. There was a way that I have changed the way I was looking things. And I looked at it as an opportunity for an opportunity. So that's why I say, don't call me shrink, call me stretch, you know, and uh, and this is very important. This is the time that you stretch your patience to see where are you now and do you like what you do? Because if you just have a job, you, you're just going to want to make the money. But if you're doing your calling, you're not looking at the money so much. You look more of the satisfaction that you get in your spirit, that you are making the world a better world. When I came to America, I talk about the time when I came from Nazi Germany and communist Russia, and in the factory that I worked, I went to the bathroom, and one of them said colored. It was very, very sad for me to see that there is prejudice, prejudice to mean prejudge. So I joined the NAACP. I marched with Martin Luther King. And today I tell people, love is not what you feel, it's what you do. Mm. I was very busy, very busy with the civil rights. I am very busy, hopefully, guiding people not to adhere to some, uh, some charismatic leader who doesn't even have, uh, how they say that, the emperor has no closure, doesn't mm-hmm. even shorts. Yeah. So you you got to really hopefully respect the knowledge and respect staying in school. And I hope to be a good role mother. In the moments for for people when something awful is happening and and there's an oppressor and you feel so much hate towards them because you feel their hate and in a situation like, you know, being in Auschwitz and how you were treated and what happened to your family and the people around you and the fear. And how do you actually help to tell people how can they change that that feeling of hatred instead of it paralyzing us, but 
mobilizing you into, like you said, you, you switched the hatred to pity and you felt sorry for them or you, or you focused on yourself and, and what your tomorrow was. But what helped you exactly in those moments to turn and to not just look at the situation and be like, I, I, I don't even know what I would do in that situation. But, I, you know, I just thinking about situations that I've been in where something so unjust is happening and I'm boiling, you know, with anger from it. And how can you switch that into something that will motivate us and, and keep us moving forward and not just paralyze us? I think it's okay to be disappointed, but don't get discouraged. Mm. It's okay to be angry, but don't allow it to lead to resentment. See, when I hate you, I can get really addicted to that hatred. But if I would hate today, I would still be a prisoner and a hostage of the past. You see, I I yes. am selfish. I want to give myself a gift. And the most obnoxious person is my best teacher. Mm. I had a white supremacy boy who was part of the David Koresh movement in Texas. That was way before you were born, honey. And he told me he's going to kill all the Jews and all the black people and all the Mexicans and all the Chinese and whoever. You see, he was out to kill. He was a 14-year-old young man, and he found himself in a place where they taught him how to be against rather than being for something. And so I think it's very important for us to question authority and never blindly adhere to authority. If yes. you read Plato, Plato says you have to think of a lie and it has to be a big one and then repeat it, repeat it until people believe it. I was told Auschwitz that I'm cancer to society and the only way I will get out of here is a corpse. And you see, the more they talked, I said to myself, you see, you don't know, you don't know who I am and I, and I will survive and I, I do not allow anybody to murder my spirit. There is hope in hopelessness. Look for the light. You always find what you look for. Mm -hmm. Get rid of always and never, I'm always going to do this, I'm never going to find a man. And sure enough, God said, yes, you're never going to find. So, right. so so, think about your thinking. It's very important because what you think, you create. That is so true. And was there ever a time during the Holocaust and in your experience or even after in your life that you felt an extreme loss of hope? I think that in my defiance, you know, that I'm never going to give in and I'm never yes. going to give up, you know, kept me going. That I became the cheerleader to me that this is temporary and I can survive it. I don't like it. It's inconvenient. Who said I have to like everything? No, I don't like it. And, and to be honest about it, but it's up to me whether I look at it as an opportunity and that I will get through it rather than yes, but. You say, yes, and. Right. Yes, I made it. I made it thus far. So the question is not why me, but what now? Ah, oh, 
that you are literally from everything that I work and study, you are the most optimistic person I have ever had the pleasure of interviewing or being around. Everything you just said is literally textbook what my definition and working definition on a true, real optimist is. I can't even... You're making me cry. I'm crying right now. This is... Beautiful, honey. You You, and I are are really here to do some good and we're we're going to find that and we're never, ever going to give up uh, because life is beautiful and we're born with love, with joy, with passion, Mm -hmm. lots of passion and purpose in life. I've been adding lately purpose too. It's important for you to maybe just have a goal and then uh, see what you're focusing on. It's very important that it will get you closer to the goal. So I'm 93, but I don't care about the numbers because I give up my need for other people's approval. I think that's very important. When you change, you can't give up anything unless you replace it with something else. Mm. So much wisdom in everything that you're saying. And I think that what's so poignant about hearing you speak is that you don't just have the words, you actually have lived through all of this and you live through example and are, again, the example in real life that you can be optimistic and hopeful even in the darkest and the most dark of situations. What can you tell us about your book, um, The Gift? Well, the book is about the self-help book because I was told after the choice that they need a how-to book mm-hmm. and that self-book. And the gift is just that, that you read the chapter and after the chapter, um, you're going to find out that maybe you are a, a bit rigid, that you can be more flexible, that you may still holding on hatred and it's time to find the part in you that is a little too judgmental that you may even uh, not look for hope in hopelessness and most of all guilt and worry guilt is in the past and you cannot change the past but you can say to yourself that if I knew then what I know now I would have done things very differently. So it's very important also to get rid of worry because Mm. we worry about this and we worry about that. But worry is in the future and worry is very neurotic. It really doesn't help any at all. So get rid of guilt, get rid of worry and live in the present. Talking about worry and fear, how did you get through, I mean, how you just shared with me that every time you took a shower, you didn't know if it was going to be gas or if it was water. How do you step into the, that shower every day? It's the spirit. Mm. It's beyond the body and the mind is that spirit that says no matter what happens, I'm going to get out of here. Mm. Even I was told every day I'm never going to get out of here alive. So I think it's very important for you not to allow anybody to get inside you 
unless you allow them. Nobody makes me angry. Mm-hmm. Nobody has, people have as much power over me as I allow them. What about forgiveness? Forgiveness is a gift that you give to yourself. And that's why I needed to do that. And I went back to Auschwitz. I wanted to go back to that lion's den. I asked my sister to come with me, and she told me I'm an idiot and I'm a masochist. So you see, you may not get the cooperation as you want, but you want to be very much at peace with you. And forgiveness gives you that freedom, that that ultimate freedom that revenge will never give you. Mm. So you you have forgiven. Yeah. I think that if you want to be free, you want to consider that I don't have godly powers. It's not me forgiving you for what you did to me. Mm-hmm. See, I don't have that kind of godly power. Mm. I am forgiving myself for putting judgment on you. Yeah, I know you were had a boyfriend. You were a ballet dancer. In that time before the Holocaust, what did your life look like? Um, Did you have a big family? Did you have many siblings? What do you think you would have kept doing? You know, maybe everything happened for my greater good. Mm. Because today I work with couples and I do my choreography, how opposites attract and then they drive each other crazy. And then they, so I am doing it in, in a many different way. I'm still dancing. I'm still guiding. I, I think that it was meant for me to, to be the person who is a good guide from darkness to light, from prison to freedom. And the biggest concentration camp is in your own mind. And the key is in your pocket. So the gift is a self-help book that Mm -hmm. you read the chapters and then there are the how-tos. It's easy reading and hopefully that you can become a good parent to you. When you were uh, liberated, how did you move forward and live your free life? What did that look like early on? I, I was actually in a hospital. And I was put in a cast. I got up in the morning and I was faced with reality that my parents are not coming back. And I became very suicidal. You see, it's easier to die than to live. Mm-hmm. And I knew that somehow that voice came to me that if I die, I may not be able to do anything for the world. And somehow I'm so glad that I didn't choose death over life. But I was very close to it because I was free, but I didn't know what to do next. So I met a guy in a hospital who brought me Hungarian salami and Swiss cheese. And (laughs) most survivors will tell you that we got married to be normal men that you got married and had children and just ran away from the past as Mm. quickly as you could. And that's what I did. I came to America and I just wanted to be a Yankee doodle dandy 
and not to speak English with an accent. And uh, thank God that I was able to come to a point when I needed to look at that part in me, that 16-year-old girl who I ran away from. And that's when I created my own theory of grieving and feeling and healing. You cannot heal what you don't feel. So what comes out of your body doesn't make you ill, what stays in there does. And that's what you do, you see. You're going to give yourself permission to feel any feelings. It's only a feeling. Don't judge a feeling. But you have a choice how long you're going to hold on to that feeling. So while you hate, you're thinking hopelessness rather than hopefulness. Right. So think about your thinking and pay attention what you're paying attention to. There is a quote in your book that reads, we do not change until we're ready. And for yourself, how did you know you were ready? And, and was there a very like specific moment? And then do you have any advice for other people who aren't sure if they're ready yet, but they do want to change? I think I was ready when I began to work with two Vietnam veterans. And one of them was, was uh, screaming and crying and hating and why me? And the other one said to me, you know, Doc, I'm, I'm in a wheelchair and I'm so grateful. God gave me a second chance. And I felt terrible because I had a white coat and it said Dr. Eager, Department of Psychiatry. And that's why I decided I got to go back to Auschwitz. It's very important for you revisit the places where you've been and then do the grief work. I think all therapy has mm-hmm. to do with grief. Not what happened, but what didn't happen. Oh, that's so powerful. And it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, in order to heal, you have to feel. And you have to feel the things that you were running from. And so you realized that while you were watching your patients feel and go through things that were anger, frustration, trauma, you realize that the only way that you could authentically heal and help other people's heal is to actually go back. And that's what drove you back. And I think that's so powerful. And you, I'm sure on that trip back, you intentionally felt in order to heal. It was important for me to go back and look at that. Look at that barrack where I was dancing for Dr. Mangala and uh, go through that grief, go through the rage. Mm -hmm. You cannot do any forgiveness unless you go through the rage. You've got to go through that rage. And many people drink and smoke and do many things to cover up that pain. Yes. There's a lot of emotions underneath of anger. There is a lot of pain there. It's very important to think about... uh, you're thinking that you turn anxiety into excitement. That's mm-hmm. what you do. Mm-hmm. You turn anxiety into excitement. Wow, I'm still here. Look at me, I made it. See? Yes. What now? And not to cover up things, but to acknowledge that suffering makes you stronger. 
I heard someone say, actually another guest that I had interviewed, she heard someone say, make your war beautiful. And I thought that was so interesting because it actually is saying that there, there is going to be war. There is going to be struggle. No life is a life without one, but make it beautiful. It, you know, deeply acknowledges that life is not about unicorns and rainbows. There are, there are going to be struggles. There will be anxiety. There will be pain. There will be worry. There will be grief. There will be loss. There will be all those things that we don't necessarily want to feel, but how can we actually go through them and what can we learn from them? Is there a gift in them and how do we make that find beauty in it? My definition of love is the ability to let go. Mm. That's so powerful. Even looking at it as a parent, that love is the ability to let go. And so many times that concept of love and letting go is so hard as a parent. I read this statistic in the Washington Post not too long ago, and um, I was really surprised by it. And I wanted to know your thoughts on it. But it said that two thirds of millennials do not know what Auschwitz is. And I'm wondering how important is it to talk about the Holocaust? And I consider it my duty. I consider it that the biggest gift of God is the gift of memory. And I want to be sure that my parents didn't die in vain. So I like, but you have to be age appropriate. You know, mm. don't love the children with that Holocaust too much. You know? You just say there was a time when good people did bad things. And uh, we are good people. We are we're good people. We, we, we learn to hate. We learn to be against. So, I, I, again, I hope that you and your husband have a lot of similarities that you can create an atmosphere for the children that they, they love to come to the home that you create. We named my first son Jag. In Sanskrit, it means universe because I'm, I'm of Indian descent. My husband is Jewish and also half Italian Irish. And my son is just a boy of the universe. I have uh, seven great grandsons. So I hope that your parents are still alive. That's your children are going to have grandparents. And uh, my, my grandfather is 94. And so my child is lucky enough, like your great grandchildren, to have a great grandfather and a great grandmother. And there's nothing I love more than, you know, even as a kid listening to my grandfather's stories of growing up in India and the positive, happy memories he had, but really more so. The, the things that he overcame and the perseverance that he, you know, had over struggles that just, I think, stick out to me more than the happy, joyful um, sort of yeah, time. I think you really don't overcome, but you come to terms with it. Mm. You said something earlier that I just wanted to touch on before we end up, and you just said it. And so do you believe that people are inherently good? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think God doesn't make junk. Young people tell me that. I think we're born with love, with joy, with passion. I think we, we're not born with hate. We are taught to hate. 
and very important how you go to the schools and pay attention what the teacher is doing in that school. Mm-hmm. Teach your child not what to think, but how to think. Yes, so true. The last question that I want to ask you on this podcast, which is called Looking Up, what's looking up for you? Um, what are you most hopeful about right now? I feel hopelessness will have a way of not winning, that hopefulness is, is coming. And I hope we have to learn now how to be patient and how to have courage to support one another. You're born alone, so be sure that your life is uh, having some kind of an order to it, that you're working, you're loving, you're playing, and uh, giving birth to the true you that Mm. was to be be free. Mm, I love that. So the last thing that we do on the Looking Up podcast is I ask all of my guests to pick a card from my my little baby, which is the Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards. And since we can't be together, I'm going to pick a random card for you. And it's your homework for today. Here's yours. Ask yourself right now, how do I want to feel? Just having an intention of how you want to feel is good enough. That's all. If you are feeling like some extra credit, drop the want and imagine what it would be like to live that feeling. Simply say, I feel. Oh my gosh, this card is so perfect for our conversation. It reminds me of all the times that you said got you through the hardest moments when you would just imagine being in a place that you wanted to be in and really feeling it. You were dancing and Budapest and you were loving with in, in love and with your boyfriend and you just escaped to where you wanted to go. Exactly, exactly. And I, I, uh, I cherish every moment you and I spend together. I am on Zoom a lot and uh, have a lot of people interviewing me, but you will never be forgotten. You have a very special place in my heart. And I'm going to cry from joy that we met. Thank you so much. I'm also crying from joy right now. And I, it is my hope that we keep in touch. And um, you have a very special place in my heart, too. I feel like I have known you forever. <laughs> and I have lots of love for you. This was such a special interview for me. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info on how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.